think about the type of customers you get in any, any hospitality situation, there are way worse people than what we see there. You know- There are way worse people at the fucking Olive Garden right now. I mean, like post-COVID, <laughs> how it's, it, is, it is dark out there. It's it dark. is fucking dark out there. Yeah. Hi, I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this episode, we are going to ruin, and I mean ruin. Yeah, really ruin it. I mean, really fuck it right up. The first season of the show White Lotus on HBO. My cognitive function is not great today. <laughs> like I took Xanax last night to help me sleep and I slept like a rock, but I feel like I didn't get like whatever level of sleep you have to get for your brain to genuinely feel rested because I, I'm so, and I even took Adderall and I, it was like it did nothing. The Adderall did nothing. I was like a zombie today. I don't know. Oh my God. Well, maybe talking about something you hate Oh, no, it'll well, liven me right up. It, but yeah, it'll just perk you right up. Um, so you've told me how you were doing. At least tell me what you were drinking. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be part of the podcast. That was a side note. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing? And what are you drinking? Okay, well, you've heard how I'm doing. I'm very tired. But otherwise, I'm fine. I am drinking a yes. chocolate Negroni. <gasps> Oh, is it with chocolate bitters? Is that the things that, is that what? No, although the recipe calls for chocolate bitters, um, it's with creme de cocoa, white creme de cocoa. Finally, finally, you have figured out something to do with that fucking white yeah. creme de cocoa. So, <laughs> listeners, what Maya knows <laughs> is that I recently discovered in my liquor cabinet that I have two almost full bottles of white creme de cocoa. Which means that at some point you bought a bottle because you wanted it to make a certain cocktail, but because you rarely use it, you forgot that you have it. So you got another bottle of it when you wanted to make another cocktail that required it. And so you have two barely opened, like, yes. and I did the same thing with my, with my um, chamomile grappa. Like, I love it so much, but then I rarely drink it. And so I bought another bottle because I was like, oh, yeah, I love that so much. And then I had two bottles. But you love it, so why not just drink it? Because I'm getting old and drinking is harder on my body. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the podcast is for, Maya. You could be drinking it right now. Well, I'm drinking something else right now, but we'll get to that. Let's get to it. What are you drinking? I have not made myself a beautiful daiquiri in so long. And there are these gorgeous Meyer lemons on my tree, like perfect the beautiful thin skin. I mean, a Meyer lemon, it is a thing to be cherished. And so I made a Meyer lemon daiquiri and it's wonderful. Delightful. That sounds like a really Cheers. lovely cocktail. Cheers. I made you watch the first season of White Lotus well, but because you were made to watch the first season of White Lotus. I mean, we've been, multiple people have asked us to talk about this show 
Yes. And so I guess that for me is the first question. Everyone told us to watch this show. Why? Why? (laughs) Well, I have some thoughts about that. I think because some of the characters are very clearly like woke liberal types. And we are the type of people that the show seems to be making fun of or criticizing. Well, I also think that we are the type of people for whom this show is made. For sure. In that this show seems to be, it was wildly successful. It won crazy awards. Hollywood is eating it up. It got a second season. And it's all because, especially coming out of this March for Black Lives time, it seems to be this savage indictment of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And we generally seem to go after structural whiteness, misogyny. It seems like this show is supposed to be up our alley in this really specific way. And I think that's why everybody wants us to watch it. Because it's like, oh, you guys are, should like this. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about it. And I think okay. we should start with what we did like. Because okay. there's a lot that's very good in the show. I want to talk about what we liked. All right. Let's do it. And, you know, warning, spoilers. We're just going to get into spoilers. So if you haven't watched it, be aware. You're going to get spoiled. Okay. So what did we actually like about the show? I mean, I thought the cast was consist like across the board i thought it was a murderer's row of very brilliant performers giving very brilliant performances some of whom were not expected because they're actors that we kind of see and know um steve zahn he was great he was was wonderful he was extraordinary yeah marie bartlett jennifer coolidge i thought natasha rothwell giving a much more um dramatic turn than she's usually known for. She's a comedy writer and a comedic performer, and she's very funny. But this role was very much like deeper for her, and she was magnificent. Oh, my God, Molly Shannon. Like Molly Shannon was great. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. All the performances were amazing. I will watch anything with Jennifer Coolidge in it. I'm sorry. She's just fucking – she just makes me laugh and smile, and I love her. The the guy who played Armand, the hotel manager, Marie Bartlett, he just carried the show. It was so fun to watch. I really did enjoy watching these performances. I also – found that the show generally like was very stylishly put together in terms of the pacing, the editing, the music was unusual and sort of added this really like weird feeling of tension. We had this very kind of handheld camera. You felt like you were in there all the time, like, and yet very skillful. So it wasn't kind of like dump truck, dump truck editing. It was like handheld camera, but still like very beautifully shot and put together. Exactly. I found that the show, it it felt, it had a feeling of like being different from anything I'd seen. It felt like it might be clever. Like a show with this sort of pacing and this music, it should be clever. <laughs> and in those terms, there were a lot of moments and beats that were very funny. But it was a very specific kind of humor, which isn't my normal thing, which is that it's very like 
cringe humor. A lot of the humor is cringe humor. And there's a lot of kind of dark humor. And I thought it was very funny. Like, I laughed. Every episode made me laugh. I think the other thing, which I think we're going to debate on a little more later, is that I found there to be savage indictments of both whiteness and heteronormativity that I found very interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like there were things that I was seeing that I thought were really great to see in terms of a a kind of criticality. But as we're going to get into later, I feel like it didn't get there. Yeah. It, It got there, but it didn't get there. Yeah, whether it hit the mark with those themes, we'll get into that. Um, I thought that one of the issues that undermined the indictment of whiteness and wealth and heteronormativity and also undermined the sort of escalation of tension was like there were a lot of what I found to be implausibilities. And I think we can get into that as we go because we'll talk yeah, about yeah. each subplot and but for me, I had some trouble getting absorbed into it and really fully enjoying the themes and or enjoying the storylines because in every episode, there were moments or there were aspects where I was like, that doesn't make sense. That's that's not real. And I think that matters because yeah. if you're going to make fun, if yeah. you're going to satirize, if you're going to criticize, you have to be criticizing something real. But we'll get, that's I'll just leave that generalization there and we'll get into detail as we go. But I think that the the sort of the attempt to savagely indict whiteness and heteronormativity or it's the, it's an admirable it's an admirable it's an, attempt and effort. Well, but I also think that's why the show is so popular. Right. Because it says that that's what it's doing. Similarly to the show Succession. Yes. So let's just briefly touch on that. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this because when watching White Lotus, I couldn't stop thinking about comparing it to Succession because of these similarities. They are both shows about disgusting rich people. Uh, They are both shows on HBO. They are supposed to be social satire. They have that kind of cringy humor. They're very similar in that way. Because they're on HBO, they both have that whole like, prestige theater they both have extraordinary actors right playing these parts one of the main differences i thought between succession and this show is the stakes and i get the idea of white lotus where like mundane things are high stakes to these people because they're so self-absorbed kind of thing but for me as a viewer watching it as a drama when you're watching succession the stakes are enormously high They're vying for control of a major multinational corporation. This is a position of tremendous prestige, power, influence. It's a big deal. Even if I don't care who runs, you know, the... Royco. Right, Royco. Waystar. Waystar Royco. um, The characters care about it so much and it is such a big deal to them that it pulls the drama along. It pushes events along in a way it has a lot of momentum and it keeps you interested. Well, and also in terms of what we were saying with the sort of plot believability, there's a way that succession is extraordinary at 
every action of the character leading to often unintended consequences, like the yes. kind of Swiss watch quality mm-hmm. of the plot unfolding and of the escalation. It is extraordinarily consistent in how you believe every action that that character is taking. Yes. And then when their attempt falls flat, the reason that it falls flat is also extraordinarily believable. So they have this, the writer's room is extremely tight with that in a way Mm -hmm. that I think both of us found not quite as accomplished on but it's trying Lotus. to do that on White Lotus. It's trying to do yeah. that, but it's not doing it as well. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens in the first season. The storylines interweave in such a way that it leads to tragic conclusions, but they don't interweave in a way that feels inevitable. That feels like, right. yes, this is the choice that this character was going to make because that's who they are. And yes. this is why it's going to backfire. It, it didn't feel that way. It felt like there were too many stretches in terms of character motivation. And even though the stakes do rise, even by the end, for most of the characters, the stakes are pretty minimal. And part of that comes from White Lotus is a show about people on vacation. And so... How are you going to, you, they, they try to introduce stakes to this by having this frame story of someone's going home in a box and we're trying to figure out yes. who. So you have this yes. element of a mystery, but that almost feels like a device. It's a construction to try to get me to care about things that I otherwise would not have any investment in. Well, and the fact that it starts, it starts with a body in a box and you're supposed to spend the rest of your time wondering like, who is that body in that box? Mm-hmm. It's not like um like an Agatha Christie where it's like the the dead body is always looming. Right. The dead body is not always looming. You kind of forget about it. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like if they wanted that device to be more effective, the dead body had to be looming in a way that it wasn't. Is this a murder mystery or not? Like are you going to deploy yeah. that or not? A- another quick thing about succession, um In our episode about succession, you and I kind of disagreed about it. And one of the main points you made is that being a show about ridiculously wealthy people, you know, people with horrible, who are horrible, yes, who are terrible people, all in various ways, and yet all in the same way. But as a viewer, inevitably, you will wind up sympathizing with them. You will wind up rooting for some of them. You will wind up identifying with them. And that, I think your argument was, correct me if I'm wrong, that in itself is a major problem. Yes. Now, listeners, I will grant that after the last season finale of Succession, I went on Twitter and was looking at what people had to say about it and recognized that for many viewers, at least the ones tweeting about it, Maya was absolutely fucking correct. I was <laughs> right. I was so fucking right. I was like, people are not watching this show the same way I am. People are definitely like rooting for these characters and seeing them as good or smart. They think Shiv is smart. You know, they think Roman is good. And it's like, no, you're not watching it right. People are watching for the character that they hope to be redeemed. Yes. So yeah, like when you spend that much time when the camera's telling you when the story is telling you this is who we're supposed to care about. Right. Yeah, people this end is, up caring and identifying. Yeah. 
Yeah. Here's what I want to say about White Lotus in that regard. Okay. It doesn't have that problem. The There's no character in White Lotus who is likable or identifiable or that I felt like I wanted to root for. I mean, I don't want to say no character because there's like Belinda, the spa manager. Yeah. But she's not one of the horrible people. That's right. Generally speaking, when it comes to the wealthy, white, horrible people on the show, there's none of them that are drawing you in and, and, and undermining any themes about how bad it is to be rich and white. That's not happening on this show, for better or worse. Right. Well, also not there, and maybe we'll get to it later, is that succession is very much about wealth porn. You're watching right. these like gloriously, gorgeously shot. You, part of why I think people identify with these yeah. horrible, irredeemable people is because we are very deliciously allowed in to these spaces these spaces of extreme wealth that none of us go to that you can only go to unless you have that much money and i feel like we're gonna get into the way that the resort this resort that's supposed to be this very fancy resort isn't quite that as as a couple of Japs who have gone to resorts, <laughs> I think we have some insider knowledge right, exactly. about the ways that it's not quite working for right. us with this White is, Lotus. But no, I want to get into it a little bit right now. Okay. Because on Succession, yeah, like they fly around in private jets. And in every episode, there's this very, yeah, ooh, this is this peek into how these super elites live. But on White Lotus... There were a lot of, there's a lot of these shots in between scenes of like the ocean, you know, the waves washing up on the shore. And there's shots of the resort. There's shots of like plates being laid on tables and things like that. But none of it is so luxurious that it makes you be like, wow, that's a luxurious resort. Right. Like when they're on the boat and they're going in, you're like, oh, like this is going to be one of those eco lodges where there are like 20 rooms and like, like this is some real wealth. And then they go to this nice resort, but so many of like the big shots of it, you're like, yeah, it's an okay place. It's nice. I bet I could like I bet I could stay here. It's yeah. It's it doesn't look like a place where I couldn't stay. Yeah. But, but also there there's certain implausibilities around the resort or or unexplained things around the resort. Like they spend the entire vacation on the resort. They never leave it which is like not an unusual thing for luxury resorts. However, if that's the case, if you're on the kind of resort that you spend a whole week there and never set foot outside the resort, it's a much bigger resort than what we're being shown. All we see is like the pool and the restaurant and the lobby. Even the actual resort where they filmed it, they filmed it at the Four Seasons Wailea. Even that resort has more than they show on the show. The show seems deliberately to want to make it seem kind of claustrophobic. They want to make it seem kind of limited. But the reality is if you're going to the kind of resort in Hawaii where you don't leave the resort, there's going to be all kinds of stuff there. There's going to be a golf course. There's going to be like five, six swimming pools. There's going to be seven restaurants. There's not going to be one restaurant that you go to the same one every night. That's that's not how that kind of resort works. If you're going to one like in Wailea, it'll be smaller. There won't be as many things to do, but also you will be steps from shops and restaurants and bars. Which is totally where the girls would be going. 
Yeah, like the girls are bored. They don't know what to do. And then, I mean, yeah. it's a very funny scene. They have the drugs. But like there would be plenty for them to do. Yeah. In fact, they would go out into the sort of tourist quarters and they would be meeting other tourists who are their age or they would be meeting a lot of locals there wouldn't be just one hot boy like there'd be a million hot boys and their parents wouldn't see them for a week while they go and have sex and do drugs exactly so the the show is already sort of confusing me about is this a luxury resort with all the fucking amenities where you never leave it and there's nothing else around meaning you're like on the big island or maybe maybe the four seasons lanai but like the four seasons lanai is beautiful like that's a resort where you would look at it and be like rich people go here yeah but this one it didn't it felt kind of mid it was like okay <laughs> it's it's nice i'm not saying i wouldn't stay there but i'm also not saying like I could never stay there. It just seems like a nice resort. And I think this matters. It it matters in the same way that it matters on succession because succession is all about framing how fucking rich these people are. Yeah. That is very important to the story it is telling. And I feel like this saying that it's a satire also needs to be correct. It needs to come correct on those details because that's what it's supposed that's what it purports to be doing. Right. If you're going to satirize something, if you're going to comment on something, you have to be clear about what that thing is. And in this case, like I had trouble pinning down how rich these characters were supposed to be. A lot of it is based on clues you get from the dialogue. I mean, you're told that Nicole Mossbacher the mom of the family, is the CEO of Poof, I think it's called, which is a search engine. She's the CEO of a search engine. That's very rich. That's very rich. And she wouldn't be staying even in a suite where the girls are on a pullout and the son is on a cot in the kitchen. on a cot. Yeah. No, it would be like a multi-room suite. It would be like one of those... um, You know, they have those little like bungalows with multiple bedrooms. Like, yeah, it would be like that. It would be like that. Exactly. And um, Shane, you first learn, Rachel says, yeah, his family has some money. So like, okay, he's from a little more money than she is. But then when Shane's mother comes and talks about, um, oh, no, no, you're not going to work for a foundation. That would just be asking yourself for money. You, she's a, somebody who holds fundraisers. Like she hosts fundraising events in she, New York, in New York, in New York. City. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You're talking about a, a very high level of wealth there. That's that's Absolutely. not just what, like comfortably well off, well to do. That's like a lot of money. Yeah. And then uh, of course Tanya, the character played by Jennifer Coolidge, it's unclear exactly how much money she has, except she definitely has enough that she could plausibly fund someone's business like starting up a business she also has enough where she's been so isolated by her wealth yeah that all of her relationships are are transactional which is very key to the plot and that's another level of money so we're told these clues that indicate that these characters are at a level of rich that is interesting But then again, is like, if you want to talk about the absurdity 
of the lives that these rich people are living. Let's see the absurdity. Let's see the kind of things that are set up for these people. Let's see the kind of things that these people think they need in order to have a proper vacation. I want to talk about each sort of subplot yes. and the ways that it attempts to comment on wealth and privilege and whiteness and other things and the extent to which it's successful or not in that endeavor. I want to start with the one that I thought was the most successful in landing any of these themes. Okay. And that's the Tanya Belinda storyline. This is Jennifer Coolidge plays this wealthy woman, lonely woman who is there to spread her abusive mother's ashes. She uh, befriends the spa manager Belinda, um, played by Natasha Rothwell. Is that her name? Mm-hmm. The, but the plot plays out very predictably. It hits the mark on the themes, I thought, in that Tanya uses her money to manipulate Belinda, basically, into helping serve Tanya's emotional needs. And then when she doesn't need her anymore, she abandons her. Yes. And so you have this clear theme of wealthy people using their wealth intentionally or unintentionally it, and not even recognizing the destruction they're leaving in their wake, not even recognizing the impact that they're having on other people's lives. Yes. Okay. It's there. Totally. There's a beautiful scene where Belinda gives her this like cranial sacral therapy that's very, <laughs> like, which is, it's such, a, it's actually such a beautiful scene because it's also like, I mean, that's a whole thing how so many people who do that kind of woo-woo therapy, um, the only way that they can make a living off of it is serving like super wealthy people so that all of this kind of woo-woo stuff is just the province of the wealthy, which is like a whole kind of thing. It didn't really get into that, but that's a no. good point. My issues with this plot line, though I think overall it was it was pretty successful in achieving what it was trying to achieve. <laughs> Number one, I thought, and maybe this is a good thing, but I thought Tanya was a very sympathetic character. Yeah. She's a she's a survivor of abuse. Dealing with the death of your abusive parent, there's like a lot of layers in that. Absolutely. And I think my issue with it isn't that there are layers there. My issue is the extent to which it's played for comedy. Well, the second, and that's the thing, like, we love Jennifer Coolidge, but the second you have her on the screen mm-hmm. with her sort of busty, overflowing, right. wearing costumes yeah. that are too tight, this kind of, like, blousey, ridiculous face, like, she is pure comedy. And I feel like it's also this way that... um a middle-aged woman is just automatically just going to be played for laughs in this certain right. way. Do you know what I mean? Like, Of course. And she's a lonely middle-aged woman, like a romantically lonely middle-aged woman. Of course that's funny. But like she, you know, the, the scene on the boat where she first attempts to spread the ashes, it's played for pure comedy. But yes. the scene is her breaking down and, in, you know, talking about how horrible her parents were to her but it's all for laughs yes right yes i laughed and i thought it was very funny and very interesting but that's also a really interesting choice yes she's self-absorbed and i get what they're saying about how her wealth makes her not aware of the effect that she's having on belinda 
It's a, right. But then again, she's totally aware. Like she says in the end, with a very high degree of self-awareness, I use my money to get close to people and I need to stop doing that. Therefore, I can't go into business with you. It's like a weird level of self-awareness in that moment. And it kind of makes it even more painful than if she just like were like forgetting about Belinda because she met a guy and forgot about her. Totally. Totally. And she doesn't seem to have that self-awareness at any other time. I think similarly, when you're looking at Belinda, she's the manager of a spa. This is not her first rodeo. And we don't even spend enough time with her to see the ways that this is actually life-changing or she starts buying into it because she sees people that she's going to forget about 30 seconds from now every single day of her working life. Yeah. And I don't think that there's enough there to make her us feel like, oh yeah, like this could be different for her. Right. This could like there are a ton of rich people who come through who are like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. God, you, you should, should have go, your own business. You should go into business for yourself. Yeah. I could help you. Like she probably hears that all the time, right? Absolutely. The, the show makes some gestures toward her being skeptical about it, not wanting to get her hopes up, but then she invests in it completely. But I want to go back to the idea of stakes here. Yes. In the end, when all is said and done, and Belinda is left with whatever little wad of cash Tanya gave her, but no business, like, okay, that's a bummer, but she's not worse off than she was. No. She got her hopes up, and then she got her hopes dashed. The stakes aren't very serious here. They're not very earth shattering. It's also, I don't know, like nobody in the story has the capacity in the moment to say, why don't you refer me to your business manager and he can handle it. And we don't have to have any interactions. You can just be a funder from afar, you know? Right. Well, because she was just trying to buy a friend. And I feel like that, again, you'd know better at a certain point. Like right. if for Belinda, if somebody she who should was, know better. Yeah, Belinda should know better. And I think if anything, Tanya would be smarter, savvier, uh, more of somebody who Belinda might fall for. Right. Like it's not written all over this woman exactly what's going to happen and how this right. is going to play Whereas out. Whereas it is. And for us, it's written all over this woman. And right. I think that part of why the people with all of this kind of wealth and power are so destructive is because they do have charm. They do know how to have those conversations. And the next pairing right. that I want to get into in that way are Rachel and Shane. Yes. What I thought was very powerful about that story um, is that as somebody who is the kind of like loser in a marriage with somebody who is like very fancy, in, in not in terms of actual reality, but in terms of status in how the world sees it, right? Right, right. This idea of a woman who kind of has her shitty job, but it's her job and it's her life. And then she sort of gets swept away into the Cinderella fantasy. And then come the honeymoon, she starts to see what it means that she's going to give up. That the bargain being made... Mm -hmm. is way more fucked up than she understood. That being a hot wife of a wealthy man 
means managing her husband being a big fucking baby. And it means not actually having your own life. It means being a servant to his achievement or not even his achievement because he hasn't achieved anything. Being a servant to his money and playing a role. And I felt like that story to me was extremely compelling because I've watched it play out a lot. Yeah. Surrounding me. I had, so while watching, I had some issues with it because I couldn't understand how it would be that Rachel would get through even their brief romance and engagement but like they've been planning the wedding for like six or nine months or something it's like how do you get through that amount of time with someone and not realize he's a huge baby man how is it that like then you go on your honeymoon and you're suddenly like wait a minute this guy's an asshole and that's in in two ways with the performance so in one way shane is such a douchebag yeah that you don't see the ways in which douchebags are trained to be very charming so you don't understand right. at all. Going back to what you were just saying about the Tanya plotline, like yeah. this person, like it shouldn't be written on their forehead. Like I'm a rich douchebag. I'm a I'm a flaky rich middle aged woman, and I'm just gonna be that. I I am a baby man douchebag spoiled entitled asshole. Like there should be another side to him <laughs> that we get and to there see. Isn't. And, and there, there should isn't. be another side to Rachel as well, where even if she's just a shitty writer of clickbait stories, like you have, if you're going to get to the place where you have no money and you come to New York and you're at the place where you can support yourself in New York as a writer, even as a writer of shitty clickbait stories, it's because you have some kind of, savvy ability to have the conversation, to make 15 phone calls, to take no for an answer and come back the next day. I know what it takes to even have that kind of shitty job. Right. And she says, she talks about how she's had to hustle and scrape her whole life. She's always had to hustle and scrape. And I want to say that I, after watching it, because while watching it, I was very, I was very distracted by this idea of like, why is she with him? How could she not know he's like this? Right. And then afterwards, I was like, actually, I really do like what they were doing there in terms of her realizing in this moment that her job from now on is going to be to exist for him. Yeah. That it, yep. it's not about liking the job that she had. It's about accepting or rejecting this idea that you as like a subject you are no longer the subject in the world he is the subject and you are there for him and absolutely i i really liked that idea that they were going for that and in moments they hit that beautifully like when molly shannon playing the mom she you know she's hugging rachel goodbye and she's like be happy you know yeah. and it's like like yes. be happy for him your job is to be happy for him. That's it. That's and it. I like and, that. And, and that she was acceptable to rich people like that because she is so beautiful. Because she's high. Right. Yeah. But I felt like it was undermined in that she says she has to scrape and hustle and work hard for everything. But we only see her being kind of timid and... And naive. And, and naive. naive and dumb. Yeah, and dumb. And and I feel like part of the way that a trophy wife situation works 
mm-hmm. is that it's not just that she would be beautiful. It's that probably a woman like that who's kind of hustled would be funny and clever. Right? And that's part of what makes her very charming and exciting and sexy. Is right. that she's like a real, she's a real person from real people. Like, so right. it, it can't just be that she's beautiful. It has to be this other thing that she's sort of kicky and makes a little comment and knows how to get information out of people because she's a reporter. No, we don't like, see any of that. We don't see any of that. All of that stuff, yeah. And it, it, it really, to me, undermines the theme here because I am supposed to not want her to give up her life give up who, who she, she is, is who she is for yeah. this marriage i am yeah. supposed to not want the power the sort of total gravity of his wealth to suck her in to the point where she loses anything she is or was the problem is who is she what was she i right. don't see what we're in threat of losing what we're in danger of losing and right the, to me, that's embodied in the scene where she approaches Nicole Mossbacher at the pool, right? She sees um, this woman who's this powerful, yeah, yes, powerful, high status. And and she approaches her and starts, you know, first of all, just starts complimenting her. Oh, you're an inspiration to me. And then asks her for advice about her marriage. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, okay, this is all set up. She's angling to try to get an interview. But, yeah. But no, she's not. She doesn't. She's None of angling that happens. to get an interview, to get a job, to right. get, you know, something, something that's going to say, oh, hey, and and you'd think that that if she was the kind of person that she was coming to New York with no money and then working in the world of media, mm-hmm. that there would be something much more strategic, even if she was in love with this wealthy guy, there'd be something much more strategic about how she would deploy that. Right. So as much as I liked what they were doing with that plot line, I would say that the weakness there is that the characters are just not dimensional enough to to really carry it and it weakens the tension of the whole situation. And if you're going to go after white wealthy heteronormativity and the ways the sneaky ways right that these right. replications of structures perpetuate themselves then you have to be much more precise about what the economies are that are always at play. So in that vein, I want to talk about the other plot line related to guests at the hotel, which was the, the Mossbacher family. Yes. Also, their plot line has a lot to do with heteronormativity, heterosexual marriage relationships, wealth and power within those. And you Absolutely. have this reversal. So where Shane is wealthy and Rachel has nothing and therefore he has all the gravity in that relationship – in the Mossbacher family, the wife is the one with all of the power and wealth. She's the really successful one. And this leads to a dynamic that's like we've seen before. It's nothing groundbreaking. Um, yes. I had trouble with this. The, I feel like 
the Mossbachers and their whole everything to do with them is like where the show really starts to falter for me. Because number one, I don't see what's so bad about these people. I don't like them. I wouldn't hang out with them. I don't think they're cool. I think, yes, in an absolutely like abstract sense, yeah, it's not fair that these people are rich and have so much and other people don't. But like they're not hurting anyone directly. Like t- like Tanya's kind of hurting Belinda. They're not being entitled like Shane. Well, you're you're making a face. Maya's making a face. Okay. Like maybe she's here's agreed. the scene that I want to anchor to. I feel like the scene that everything is about with the Mossbachers, the scene that is supposed to be like the heart of, of their whole story. So you have Nicole Mossbacher, who's the big, you know, accomplished executive she runs everything she manages everything she clearly manages everything about this family she has her husband who just doesn't want to fuck her anymore and she has this daughter and the daughter's friend olivia and paula who are reading francis fanon and all of this socialist literature and they're like the woke kids and then she has this son who's just a screen addicted zombie okay this is the setup when they walk in Yes. And there's a conversation that happens in the pool, I believe, where Nicole Mossbacher is talking about how, you know, who's really having a hard time right now is white men. It's, it's young white men. It's, a it's at the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Young white men are the ones who are really having a problem. They can't get hired. You know, your brother is going to have a harder time than any person of color. And the thing is, is that recently I have heard people make that argument at a dinner party in a way that was like, are you fucking kidding me? And I felt like that was probably the tightest best scene that distills this this terribleness where the daughter knows it's wrong, but she doesn't know how to fight against it. The mother, who's the one with her hands on the reins of power, truly does believe this Mm -hmm. and is this kind of white liberal who's like i know that we're supposed to care about people of color now but you know who really can't get a job right now is your brother right right like that's the that is the the central scene from which everything else should should yes but most of what happens with the mossbachers is not about that right and the show spends most of the time with the husband and with his midlife crisis and yes. with him feeling like he's so emasculated. And and so it's like, yeah, this is what we spend the most time with. And ultimately with the Mossbachers, those are the threads. Like one of them is when the woman is more powerful than the man in a heterosexual relationship, it leads to the sex drying up and him yeah. feeling emasculated. Yeah. And it's only resolved by him rushing in to physically fight the intruder in their hotel room. And that reawakens their sexual desire for each other because he is reoccupying this traditionally masculine role. Like his whole thing, his father, he finds out his father had sex with men and it shatters his whole life. Everything's about his emasculation and his Everything like, is about his balls. Yes. Yeah. Literally his balls. He thinks Actually he has ball literally cancer. his balls. Yeah. And in case 
in case in that first episode you didn't get that his fears of ball cancer mean he's emasculated, he even says to his son, "It's he's like, yeah, I feel emasculated." <laughs> like he's because the show it has the characters say everything just in so, case you. Okay, maybe part of what the show is trying to say is that at the end of the day, all of these systems are set up to replicate themselves. Yeah. That it doesn't matter what might be at stake, the systems win, which I am all there for that story. But then maybe it would be better if we saw the systems a little bit more at risk. And we don't. Like, like That's a show really the, good point. Show the systems being at risk. And then the tension is, is this alternate reality of this vacation going to finally kill white supremacy and the misogyny inherent right. in heteronormativity? Are the Mossbachers actually going to learn how they're wrong and use their positions of power and influence to, Absolutely. to make things better? Like maybe for a moment we might think that. Yes. Or are the Mossbachers maybe going to like get divorced and say, you know what? I want a different reality. Right. And you see them on the verge of that different reality. Right. Like, I will give credit, like, at least in this Shane and Rachel storyline, Rachel's going to leave him. And then when she doesn't, it makes the meaning of that and the satire there land harder because you're like, 100. yeah, no, she's never going to fucking leave him. Of course That's right. not. That's right. But they don't do that. There's nothing like that with the Mossbachers. No. It's hard for me not to feel like, ultimately it lands on this place of like it's not good for a woman to be more wealthy and powerful than her husband it's not right. good for a heterosexual marriage for that to be the case and that maybe he just needs to be in a position where he has to defend her honor so it's good that he, they were put in that position right, so like right. that, so then the vacation did its job right exactly exactly cuz the her bracelets were at risk Right. Like, that's what right. was at risk. He saved the bracelets. And the other thing about the Mossbachers is that, yeah, the, the daughter and her friend, Olivia and Paula, they're very clearly depicted as young college woke people. V very specifically, like, they're criticizing Hillary Clinton. Yes. And and the mom is a Hillary Clinton fan. Could we're, of we're very of clearly course. positioning these characters as like the mom is this like lean in feminist type. Yes. And the daughter is this progressive college student. And I appreciate that um even though the daughter has more progressive views, she's capable of seeing the idea of white privilege. She's capable of feeling critical of colonialism and all of these things that her parents are not capable of. When yes. all is said and done, when all is said and done, they are her tribe, as Paula says, because the show has to tell you, the characters have to tell you all the things. And she will evolve into what her mother is over time. Absolutely. And actually, to be fair... I thought that you see that in the way that her betrayal of her friend is all around sexuality and white womanhood. And yes. I thought that that was like, I thought that was fairly clever. Like she thinks because she's this hot white girl, her friend should not get to have sex with the hot native. Like right. it and should be her because she's the hot and white as, girl. As Paula says, Olivia is a good friend to have as long as she I don't have anything she doesn't have, or as long as she has more than I have, something like That's that. That's right. 
So it's very clearly established by the show that for all of her posturing, for all of her correct views, politically speaking, social justice wise, when it comes to her actual relationship with Paula, Olivia needs to constantly reinstantiate her privilege, her dominance, her and dominance, be the queen bee. Yes, exactly. And to a large extent, Paula is her accessory. Paula yes. is her badge of how woke she is. Yes. Olivia also is probably the biggest sociopath of any of these characters, right? She is the character who has the fewest, if any, I don't think she has any redeeming qualities. The other characters at least have some redeeming qualities. Well, because they have needs and yearnings and and and. And hurts. Yes. They have exactly, hurts. Exactly. Yeah. And it's weird that the biggest, the worst person on the show, I was going to say the biggest villain, but she's she's not because I'm going to argue in a moment that Paula is the biggest villain. Well. But the worst character on the show is the young, woke white girl. Yep. That's yep. A choice to make. It's a choice. That's a I'm going to make a show that is making social commentary. I am going to satirize wealth and whiteness and privilege. And the worst of them all is the young, woke, white girl white who girl. says all the right things. She votes for Bernie. And right. she criticizes you for being homophobic or ignoring colonialism. She's the worst. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it is, I mean, white women so often are the worst. I'm not going <laughs> to. No, that's true. I, that is uh, true. It's true. But also, it's it's an interesting choice on the part of the show. Because how do you avoid, how do you avoid interpreting it as when white people are woke, it's just posturing. It's one thing to say, like, hey, woke white people. I know you're saying the right things, but in the end, are you just going to run back to your white privilege and your tribe of privilege? Okay. But it's another thing to imply that like college age people who say things about how we should be inclusive and have justice for all are just full of shit. Well, because in the same way, in the same way that Tanya can never not just be played for laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, the character of Olivia can never not just be a posturer. Right. Like there's never a time where we are so bought into her because it also completely denigrates that whole generation. They're, mm -hmm. they're hooked. That whole generation is just hooked on something. When there's that very funny scene where they're like, oh, we have no drugs. And then she's like, well, but I have this drug for this. Oh, and I have this drug to, you know, right, right. come down and this drug to put me up. And I have the Adderall and then I have the thing that I take and they end up having all these drugs, right? Right. There's nothing about them that is redeeming so that when they disappoint you, it's a real disappointment. They, they really are horrible and they're f kind of fun in their horribleness at first yes but very quickly we see that olivia's just not a good person not a nice person not a good friend she's, not a yeah, good she's like, manipulative she's mean she's snobbish she's selfish and it's hard to avoid the idea being that all wokeness is just 
posturing. Well, because also it's not the individuals who are the tragedy. It's about the way that the gravity of the structures take even the most well-meaning of us and pulls us back into these structures that are ultimately destructive. So how much better would it be, how much better if Olivia were well-meaning in any way, shape, or form? How much better if she really feels these things? She's not just saying these things to be different from her parents, to piss off and troll her parents. She actually cares. And then how much more powerful when in the end she winds up just being reabsorbed into the structure. hundred percent, hundred percent. And so there's one more relationship in terms of the stories, the main arcs. So we've talked about Tanya Belinda, Rachel and Shane, the Mossbachers. Now we have the the spine of the story, you would say, because it's also the spine of the murder mystery, Mm -hmm. is the fight between Shane and Armand over whether Shane had the right room. To me, this storyline is where the entire thing breaks down. Okay. The other storylines are like, okay, I don't see what the Mossbachers did that's so bad besides just be white people, but okay. But with Shane, the Shane and Armand storyline, I am like yelling at my TV because <laughs> the idea, I get the idea here. I'm right. supposed to see a story where class-wise, the shit runs downhill. Yes. And Armand, the hotel manager, represents this middle class, this sort of person who has this realm of power, but he's not part of the elite class. He serves the elite class and he gets shit on by the elite class. But instead of fighting back against that, he turns that around and then shits on the people beneath him. And he rules over his little domain like a dictator. And I get that idea. I like, I love that idea. So here are my my issues with this storyline. It's it's so it gets off to such a good start because Armand as a character he's talking down to Lonnie the trainee and the episode the first episode ends culminates with her giving birth in his office and him having this realization of like how could I have not even noticed Absolutely. this woman in front of me Absolutely. who's in labor like yes wow yes this, I am so corrupted I am so fucked up by this system like okay interesting idea I like this idea yes but where are we going with it well if if Lonnie's story is sort of like this catalyst yes Armand's downfall is exacerbated by it's really brought on by this story with Shane it seems like yes. he's stressed out by the thing with Lonnie and that is somehow some kind of breaking point that makes him now unable to deal with Shane yes and we're supposed to hate Shane which I do because he makes a big snit and he has this like big total baby tantrum over the difference between this one room and another room. And you see that impact his wife, who's like, this is the fanciest room I've ever been in. Why are you caring about this room? Yeah. So, okay. First of all, I think Shane did nothing wrong. I think he wanted the room that he booked. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting the room that you booked. (laughs) The room that he booked had a private pool. (laughs) I mean, like... 
I don't care how much family money you have. If you booked a private pool, you want a private pool. But the thing is, is not that. It, it's that when he goes to Armand to tell him that he thinks they are in the wrong room, Armand lies to him. He's, he yes. tells him, nope, nope, yes. this is the room you booked. And you know what? It's a better room. He thinks he can manipulate Shane, blah, blah, blah. This is before the incident with Lonnie. Yes. So it's not like the incident with Lonnie pushed him to this new place where he's like, you know what? One more rich fucking asshole exactly. is enough. This has destroyed me. I can't, I can't do it can't do anymore. it. I can't give this guy what he wants. No. This is his everyday being terrible at his job. This is a luxury resort. I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that at this type of resort, that if you come to the front desk with a complaint that you got the wrong room not the room you booked and it's their error they should say we're so sorry for the error let we will make this up to you and it's not like anyone has to be creative because they have a list of things already that you do in these situations that they do all the time exactly. that you do all, that you the, do time. all the time okay yeah i get what you're saying i am seeing that uh the thing about Armand's story, and it's funny because Murray Bartlett is so brilliant and he won awards for his performance and it's so good. But the role itself in terms of how has working this job where you're serving these people corrupted you to the point where this is your rebellion. I think that that's what the show is trying to say, that his rebellion or his opportunity to push back is to take drugs and fuck his employees and like decide that I'm going to just screw this person, this rich guy, like this one asshole is just taking it too far. It's back to that idea of the escalation and whether we're going to buy the escalation based on the actual events that are happening plot-wise. Thank you. In the abstract, I appreciate that idea of like, what has this job made me? It has made me become the kind of person that would not even that notice. doesn't notice when I have an employee who's nine months exactly. pregnant who's about to go into who's labor. literally yeah. in labor in front of me. Okay, fine. Except that before that even happened, he already was mishandling this issue with Shane. That if he had simply handled correctly, like if he were doing his job correctly, none of the rest would have happened. And like, okay, he's decided he doesn't want to do his job, but it's like, what ha other than Shane... Who, again, I need to reiterate, I do think his demands are not unreasonable. You know that Armand has dealt with way worse people than this. Yes. But you don't see it. You don't see any of it. And for me to understand, like, why he thinks these people are the lotus eaters, why he's seething with resentment for them, why he feels so manipulated by them, it's really an interesting choice to try to map class struggles against the hospitality industry, to have guests at a resort stand in for the upper class and the resort management stand in for some kind of upper middle class. Okay, okay. So then this I think gets us to, to our final breakdown about how all of this is working. Okay. There is the, the whole idea of the show that is like the upstairs, downstairs show, 
where you get to these ideas of class and these coexisting realms of the upper class with their problems and the lower class with their problems and how those things interact and feed off of one another. But as you so brilliantly noted, this is this show that's trying to be about white privilege and colonialism that is almost entirely all from white people's points of view. Yes. It is almost entirely all from the points of view of people with power. And so even if you're saying this is a satire of those people, how can it be a true satire when we never go downstairs, where we never actually get to know in a real way or have the engine of the story in a real way driven by people who are not white and not vacationing and not colonialist? And part of what we're seeing is like the character who's the most compelling in that way, who is brilliantly acted, was Lonnie. Yes, the trainee in the first episode. That that she would be desperate enough that even as she's like approaching the end of her pregnancy, she's on the first day of a job because she needs this job. And she won't leave the job because she can't. And her denial of that because of whatever situation she's in is so profound that she stays there even as she's going into labor. And then after the first episode, we never, we never see, see her, her again. again. We never see her again. We barely hear about her again. This, to me, gets at the core of where this show really actually fails. Lonnie, the worker, the person at the bottom of the totem pole, the trainee, and the woman of color, exists only as a catalyst for a a white man's story. Yes. And even if the white man is serving the even richer white people. Right, right, right. The core, the backbone of the story is about the white man who's not as rich as the other white people. But like, if the idea that I'm supposed to be getting is that he shits on the people below him, where are they? Who are they? And you have a couple of these hot, you know, his hot boy, his hot boy toy. Right. His hot boy toy who seems to be totally game and not bothered by being sexually exploited by him and like... There's layers to that, but the show is not interested in exploring that. But the show is not interested in showing us any of the actual workers. The only characters of color or characters of not of privilege that we see are, well, there's Belinda. Yes. Who's by far the most developed character with the most developed storyline. Even she could be way more developed and have way more of a story because she's always acted upon and she doesn't act. Absolutely. So where is her manipulation of Tanya? Where is her management? We see her we see her reacting and managing other people. We don't see her. And then how does her stress play itself out? What does she do for a good time? What weird TV shows is she watching at night when she comes home from dealing with these people all day? We're not interested in that at all. And even when we see the Hawaiians who are forced to like do the dance for the white people, which the show tells us, look at these Hawaii, you know, in the yeah, in the right, mouths right. out of the woke characters, look at these people being forced to do the dance. We don't get to know them at all how seriously do they take it or not take it like what are they doing with their day what are their dreams what are their ambitions how do their ambitions sometimes match white privilege because if that's the world of winning how do they fall into that world too the show is not interested in exploring any of that none of that and like zero of that you have this one character kai the the hot hawaiian guy 
Kai is our one person who represents all of Hawaii, Native Hawaiians. Yes. Oh, God. This is where the show goes off the fucking rails to me. Yes. First of all, the storyline is preposterous. What a great idea. Let's tell a story about a Hawaiian resort and incorporate the history of Hawaiian colonialism and acknowledge, let's acknowledge that when you white wealthy people are vacationing in Hawaii, you're vacationing on land that was stolen. Yeah, let's do it. Except you have to do it in the form of this ridiculous story. Kai is like, cannot be older than 25 years old, right? Yes. And he's talking about how as a child, he and his grandfather would fish at this beach because it was their land and then go tend their taro patch. Yeah. He's talking about living a traditional native Hawaiian lifestyle right. that hasn't existed for a hundred years outside yes. of a few specific areas that are like Which reserved. are not where these resorts are. Yeah. Not Which are not the there. Are. Not there. So you're 25. This is 15 years ago at the at the most and i'm sorry but like i can see that you're on maui <laughs> like i can see the the island of kaholawe in the background i can like you are on maui so you're never going to convince me that this beach 15 or 10 years ago was inhabited by native hawaiians living a traditional lifestyle no it wasn't it was not yes like that's that's ridiculous and and then in that respect like at this point you have young people who are saying yeah that was my grandparents traditional life and we're fighting for reparations so like where the activists like the real for real like go right now all you have to do is just go spend a week with actual real people. There are activists and academics and a whole world of really brilliant people who are doing that work in terms of colonialism, specifically on the Hawaiian island. And and the history of, of American colonialism in Hawaii is very interesting and very terrible, but it is not the history of... 10 years ago, the government taking away this kid's land and giving it to a resort. It's a history of like a hundred years ago. Yes. And and so and so at this point, it's less likely that he will have been planting on the taro patch, and more <laughs> likely that he's in college right now learning about this history and right. starting to challenge what's been given to him and starting to be part of like an activist cell of like young native Hawaiians like him. Like that's a more likely scenario. That is a real scenario. Or you can just tell a story. You can tell a story of a native Hawaiian family that are struggling economically. Absolutely. You can tell a story of why a, a Hawaiian woman might feel like she can't leave her job to go into labor. Yes. But then tell that story. And this is where we're back to the succession thing. Right. You think that you're making fun of these people, but by only telling the story of these white people, you are showing that you only care about telling the story of these people. That that's the only story worth telling. That's it. And then the other character, most prominent character of color is Paula. Yes. The friend, the accessory friend to Olivia. And I want to argue that Paula is the biggest villain of the show when all is said and done. 
She is, okay? So, yes, she has to sit through dinner where the powerful white people are saying how young white men are the ones who have it the hardest. And that's very yes. rude. And, and it's flat out racist and she shouldn't have to sit through that. Fair enough. Yes. But first of all, I have to ask, why is she there? Why is she friends with Olivia? Why is she on this trip with these people in the first place? The only conclusion I can walk away with is that for her, the lure of wealth and all that comes with it is more powerful than anything else. And so, again, she is buying into the system as much as anyone else. Correct. But then she decides that because it's so horrible for Native Hawaiian people to dance at a luau, a fakey luau thing at a resort for the white people. This is so terrible and humiliating. They took away their land. They deserved reparations for this. And somehow the Mossbachers specifically are responsible for providing those reparations because they have bad politics. They have bad views. They don't recognize their privilege. Yes. And she convinces Kai to do this scheme that is like the dumbest thing anyone's ever thought of. Yes. Right? It's not going to actually make Kai's life better. It's highly unlikely to even work. It's, yes. On the face of it, it's clear that it's a terrible idea. And Kai, I guess, is so naive or dumb or in love with her or whatever that he stupidly agrees to do it. So right. right there, I'm like, my sympathy toward the colonized is being really undermined. Right. It, it's weakened substantially because I'm well, like, what also the because, fuck are you thinking? Because Kai would be smarter than that. You would like to hope. Yeah. Like, he's smart enough to recognize that getting a job at the resort is better than resentfully sitting on the sidelines and being poor. And like, I'm sorry, the idea that doing luau performances for tourists is this like super humiliating sign of colonial oppression. I like, I chafe at that idea. I know it's not my place to chafe at this, I, I don't know. I'm not Native Hawaiian. I have no relationship to people Native Hawaiian. If any one of you listening are, I'd love to hear your thoughts on yes. this. I would really yes. love to hear your thoughts yes, on this. Yes, please. My family, who are of Filipino extraction, lived in Hawaii. My Auntie Mary grew up in Hawaii. My mom was born in Hawaii. And for my Auntie Mary's 80th birthday party, my cousin Andrea and her troop did a whole luau dance thing, you know. Oh, like, so like, good. My experience of it coming from a family that's Filipino extraction, but, you know, via Hawaii, there was never any hint of this idea that that these luau performances, even though like 90% of the dances you do are Tahitian hula. They're not even Hawaiian hula. But there was never any hint of this being exploitative. Of course, they're doing it in my family's case for an Asian Pacific Islander audience but like we also we also went to resorts in Hawaii and went to fakey luau's in Hawaii I don't know like I would like I would love if anyone is native Hawaiian <laughs> or if you have friends who are make them listen to this and contact us because I want to know if this feeling of resentment even exists it's not in my personal experience of it well okay again this reminds me of of uh when I saw um Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon, where like Book of Mormon is supposed to be the satire of Mormons and Mormon missionaries going to Africa. And 
the thing that I thought was so horrible and why they should burn the whole theater down and like string those guys up by their toenails for writing it is that the show's research on the Mormons and the satire is so tenderly and beautifully observed. And then when they go to Africa, it's just straight, like stereotypes. biggest stereotypes in the world. Yeah. And it the show is showing me that it actually really only cares about the Mormon characters, that it thinks it's satirizing. But when you want to get the satire just right, and you don't care about the African characters, and you're just going to be in broad right. stereotype for them. And it's the same thing here, where it's like, I'm going to get really specific about these like suffering white people, and then I'm going to paint the Hawaiians or the natives or the wildly mixed race world of Hawaii, yes, which is yes. one of the most like fusion mixed cultures places ever. Right. Then you're showing me what you are, storyteller. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's exactly what I'm saying. So Paula, back to Paula if we can, just quickly. Yes. She manipulates Kai into doing this stupid idea and inevitably Kai gets caught. And his life is ruined. Yes. And Paula, what does she do? She takes the shell necklace that he gave her and drops it in the ocean, Titanic style. But what she's doing is, yes, she's saying goodbye to Kai and her relationship with him, but she's also hiding the evidence of her relationship with him. That's right. She's walking away. Her proximity to whiteness and white privilege is going to save her She's back literally in Olivia's arms. And in the same way that the the wokeness of the young white woman is undermined, the wokeness of the young woman of color who is reading Frantz Fanon is also undermined and also completely negated. Yeah. Kai's life is ruined. He was fine. He was fine. He had a job. He was fine. And Paula, in her attempt at social justice, attempt at at, at some right, kind of righting mo- the wrong movement of reparation, yes, of reparations, right? Exactly. She ruins his life, but she walks away fine. So then, the person who's to blame in this show is the young woman of color. So we have that. We have that. And then we also have. This final thing that the show does, that for all that this show is supposed to be satirizing this white mom who's like, you know, who really has a hard time is my white son. The only character who gets redeemed in this whole show is the white boy who experiences character growth via magical natives whose names we never learn, with whom the camera never even hangs on their faces enough that we ever saw them on the street. Like we barely see their faces. They have no character. They have no story. They simply exist in order to make him surrender his screen addiction and be authentic. Right. I can't emphasize enough this idea that these... Uh, presumably native Hawaiians, but whatever, they appear to be Asian or Pacific Islanders. 
they're not characters. They are just they are a outrigger canoe. Crew. Not only are they they have no faces, but they have bodies. They, they have definitely big, have bodies. <laughs> oh yes, they do. They have very strong, muscular bodies. How fucking exploit oh God. That storyline, it's like the worst. It's the worst. Like the people of color, the native exploited colonized people exist to help the white person grow. Yep. First of all, this is like a tremendous white fantasy. I mean, yes. The idea oh my that God. The idea that the people of color exist, that the, that the indigenous people exist for you is problematic. Yes. But also yes. it's this great fantasy of like, hey dudes, what are you doing? What's going on? And they're not like, you know, fuck off, Howley, go back to the mainland. <laughs> they're they're like, sure, white kid, come join us. The white kid who it's been established has no friends and is lonely. The natives come in and be friends to him. They they provide him everything he needs. And this is somehow him growing, growing yes. past the need of his phone. Yes. And also resisting his family, finally rejecting them. Right. He rejects them. Exactly. The white The white girl who's reading Fanon is not rejecting her family, but he is by just being, by just being authentic in his body, rowing with these like hot right. native guys, Built man. Guys. Yeah. Built yeah. nameless guys. And, and this is fulfilling to him because the purpose of non-white people is to help you be fulfilled that's right white person that's right that's right and the purpose of going on vacation like what are you the first fucking person that went on vacation and didn't want to go home <laughs> like <laughs> wow you've really grown as a person also <gasps> they have outrigger canoeing at every resort like you want to go outrigger canoe like they have outrigger lessons they have outrigger yeah and trips. this and this kind of pasty white boy is just really going to be what the team needs right well that's they're really the going right? to be what the team needs to like, like we win need their another guy let's get this skinny teenager this skinny teenager who's in, who doesn't do anything physical with yeah. his body it's not like he goes and plays soccer back at home and so he's somewhat fit he's like some pasty little white boy who like never leaves his room or his screen but he's gonna help them you know, they are doing an act of kindness for him but making him feel like he's helping them yeah 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 and and then and then you you had something to say about the song that they're playing okay, yeah all right this is <laughs> this is where it like kills me so as the quinn the white boy is sitting <gasps> on the beach seeing the canoe team come in on their outrigger the song that's playing is a remix of aloha oi everybody knows aloha oi it's like the most famous hawaiian song that song was written by queen lilio kalani the last sovereign the last monarch of the kingdom of hawaii who was deposed forced to abdicate by a group of american and european businessmen who wanted Hawaii to be um, annexed by the United States. Yes. With the help of the United States military. Yes. They basically well, yeah. forced, forced her to abdicate. 
And that was the end of Hawaiian self-rule. It was the end of native Hawaiian self-rule. She was the last. And she wrote that song. So yeah, it's like a, it's a lovely song. And it's a song about departing from those you love that stands on its own as a wonderful Hawaiian song. But in the context of a show that is directly addressing and talking about issues of colonialism in Hawaii, you cannot escape. Okay, you've chosen, they surely you've chosen this song deliberately because of who wrote it. Because yeah, right? Like that's, I mean, right? Right, right. But, but the context here is the, a white boy, a mainlander white boy, seeing these incredibly built but basically faceless and nameless natives rowing their outrigger like i don't know how to interpret that i don't know if this is a white showrunner who just honestly doesn't even know that history of this song or if that was chosen to be a pointed message about something but i don't know what the message is in that case well, and I feel like, again, so back to what we're talking about, if you're going to do a satire of whiteness and colonialism, you have to be precise about the actual resort and the sort of style and aesthetic of whiteness that's getting performed yeah. and they're not getting it right. You also have to be precise about that. You also have to be precise about that because there are all sorts of ways that people survive win, make it happen for themselves, take care of tourists so that they can live their own very rich and full lives, mm -hmm. none of which is on screen. <laughs> none of which we see. And so what it comes down to is this show is this kind of total Hollywood thing where they think they're being so, oh, we're satirizing white people. We're going to have this win Emmys and Golden Globes because, because this is us saying, yeah, yeah, we're so bad. We're bad white people. We're so bad. Or you as a viewer feel superior, like, oh, at least I'm not as bad as that. And then the show itself has no real people of color, native characters downstairs to the upstairs and no precision and cleanliness. And at the end of the show, the winner is the white boy who gets to go native. And so it's doing everything that Hollywood thinks it's challenging, which is why it fucking sucks. Also, I found it kind of boring, frankly. Yeah. It kind of at a certain point, like I was really like, I was, I was kind of watching it like, I got to watch this because we're going to talk about it. So there, there guys, did we do it for you? Did we ruin it? Did we ruin White Lotus listeners who really wanted us to talk about it? I think we did a really good job, actually. I think, I if, think so. if Mike White heard this, I think he'd feel pretty bad. <laughs> that makes me feel bad. I don't want anyone who's like gone through creative process and made a thing to feel bad about their thing. And yet here we are doing yeah. a podcast where we literally <laughs> ruin things. So nobody let him listen to this. <laughs> but seriously, let us know. <gasps> Listeners, what's your favorite resort in Hawaii? <laughs> but also, uh, I feel like listeners, if you want to send us to Hawaii, um, <laughs> join our Patreon. This is a good idea. Send us to Hawaii. <laughs> 
this will benefit you all in some way. We'll have so much to say about it. We can compare I, our... We'll go to a luxury resort. Let's go stay yes. at the Four Seasons. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll compare our experience to what we saw we'll in White Lotus. We'll do outrigger canoeing because I really feel like I've been working on my upper body strength. I feel like my core and upper body strength, I think I could do it. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash sauce podcast. Tell us what you think about the World Cup, about outrigger canoeing, about your last trip to Hawaii, about resort. Because that's the other thing about all vacations are about suspending belief of your daily life. And it's all people, many of whom actually have shitty day jobs back at home. Right. Like that's the whole fucking point of a vacation. It's the hospitality industry. This is what I can't get over. Like you're supposed to be pampered. That's why it's a vacation. It makes a bad analogy. And the, the people who are pampering also go on vacations. Yes. To places where they are then pampered. Because that's the whole fucking deal. Right. Um, so tell us your thoughts on the hospitality industry. If you've worked in the hospitality industry. Oh, yes, especially at a very hotel much want to hear from you. Resort. If you are dealing with tourists on a regular basis, please talk to us. So if you join our Patreon. Yes. You can join us on the Sauce Speak Easy, which is our Discord where we chat about all this stuff. Now, you can also reach us via email. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on all those socials as at saucepodcast. Including at saucepodcast at nerdculture.de on Mastodon. Yes. Because I really want to be done with Twitter. Um, but it just keeps going. Uh, you can find me at Maya Garantz anywhere you are looking for Maya Garantz's except for Facebook and Twitter. You can find me as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. And uh, we have more things to say about the end of Twitter. We have more things to say. And I think we need to actually do that episode about the uh, Lifetime holiday movie about the Jewish... Lifetime made some kind of Hanukkah movie. They made a Hanukkah... They made a Hanukkah romantic comedy movie. All right. Let's watch it. Let's do it. I think that's going to have to be our holiday episode this year. All right. All right. And other topics. And if you have any topics, stuff you want us to ruin, let us know. All right, guys. Adios, amoebas. Which is, shit. <gasps> it's okay.